Welcome back to our journey through the book of Revelation, certain comfort in uncertain times. Over the past several weeks, we've been in Christ's seven letters to the churches. We have seen him write a letter to a loveless church, a, a suffering church, an idolatrous church, an immoral church, and a lifeless church. And today we see him write a letter to a persevering church in writing a letter to the church at Philadelphia. Back when I was in high school, Adam Sandler came out with a movie called Waterboy. And it was a comedy, and it was an underdog story. And so of course there's always those moments in the movie where the main character undergoes a trial, undergoes some doubt, questions uh, whether or not he is capable of fulfilling the plot line. And of course we as an audience are left wondering, and in this particular movie, there's a background character called, uh, played by Rob Schneider. And anytime Adam Sandler's character experiences this, Rob Schneider's character shouts out in the background, you can do it. Uh, and it's a funny part of the movie because that really is what we shout out at ourselves, at others, as we are experiencing trials, as we are trying to persevere in something. Uh, we try to encourage ourselves and others with that message that you can do it. And of course, that's not the gospel message. Uh, the gospel message is not that we can do it, not that you can do it. And we see that in the passage that we'll look at today in Revelation chapter 3 as Christ writes this letter to the church at Philadelphia. Uh, his message is not one, as this church struggles to persevere, his message is not that they can do it, but rather his message is that he can do it, that he has done it, that he is doing it and that he will continue to do it. And so follow along as I read Revelation chapter three, verses seven through 13. Write to the angel of the church in Philadelphia. Thus says the Holy One, the true one, the one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will close, and who closes and no one opens. I know your works, Look, I have placed before you an open door that no one can close, because you have but little power. Yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Note this, I will make those from the synagogue of Satan who claim to be Jews and are not, but are lying. I will make them come and bow down at your feet, and they will know that I have loved you. Because you have kept my command to endure, I will also keep you from the hour of testing that is going to come on the whole world to test those who live on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one takes your crown. The one who conquers, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will never go out again. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. You may have noticed as we read through this passage that this is now the second church that Jesus does not have anything negative to say about. And it's also the second church that is experiencing persecution. Now, the church at Smyrna was poor and they were experiencing persecution and Jesus had nothing bad to say about them either. And here to the church at Philadelphia, Jesus commends them, uh, says that he knows that they've been suffering. 
uh, and yet he encourages them merely to continue persevering. He does not condemn them for anything. And in his encouragement to the Church of Philadelphia to help them persevere, he re really reassures them, again, not that they have to do anything, but that he has done everything that's necessary. And he really highlights the three aspects of our salvation, all of which are accomplished by him. And so our first point today in looking at this passage is that the same Jesus who loves you has saved you. The same Jesus who loves you has saved you. Jesus sets the tone immediately right off the bat in saying, thus says the Holy One, the True One, the One who has the key of David, who opens and no one will close, and who closes and no one opens. In identifying himself as the Holy One and the True One, he is making a statement about his divinity. Being holy speaks of Jesus' transcendence. He is holy other. Being true points to the fact that he is the real deal, the genuine article, that he is faithful to those who are his. And so Jesus really is marking himself out uh, as the God of the church, just as Yahweh is the God of Israel in the Old Testament, as the Holy One and the Faithful One, God preserved Israel. Jesus is telling them that as the Holy One and the True One, the Faithful One, He is the one who preserves His church. And He says that He is the one who has the key of David, which speaks to His authority to rule the kingdom of God. And if Jesus has the authority to rule the kingdom of God, that includes the authority to determine who enters that kingdom. And we see in verse 9 that he tells this church at Philadelphia, Note this, I will make those from the synagogue of Satan who claim to be Jews and are not, but are lying. I will make them come and bow down at your feet, and they will know that I have loved you. Like the church in Smyrna, the church at Philadelphia seems to have been primarily opposed by the synagogue, by the Jews of the city. And as we said back in the, the letter to Smyrna, calling the Jews the synagogue of Satan is not saying that Jews are satanic, uh, that they come from Satan, that the Jewish religion is satanic. Rather, Jesus is identifying this group as the one who are adversarial to the church. Satan means adversary. And he's again making the point that though the Jews of Philadelphia, just like the Jews of Smyrna, think that they are on the side of the God of the Old Testament, they are not. Just as Paul once thought that he was on the side of the God of the Old Testament. He was very zealous in his opposition to the church, only to find out that in opposing Christ, he was opposing the God of his own faith. And the Jews of Philadelphia, like the Jews at Smyrna, seem to have cast the believers of Philadelphia out of the synagogue. They refused to accept Christians as heirs to the promises of Abraham, Moses, and David. And so Jesus is telling the church at Philadelphia that because he is the true Israel, because he is the true David, it is he who gets to decide who makes up God's people and who doesn't. He is letting them know that although God's people have cast these believers out of the synagogues, that they are in fact God's people. Jesus draws on several Old Testament 
passages, most notably Isaiah 22, where prophecy regarding Eliakim, son of Hilkiah, points forward to a greater fulfillment in Christ. And it says of Eliakim, I will clothe him with your robe and tie your sash around him. I will hand your authority over to him and he will be like a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. I will place the key of the house of David on his shoulder. What he opens, no one can close. What he closes, no one can open. When this passage finds its fulfillment in Jesus, the point is that it is Jesus and Jesus alone who saves a person and inaugurates him into the household of God and the kingdom of God. The fact that these Jewish synagogues had started to expel Christians from them does not mean that these expelled believers were outside the household of God or the kingdom of God because it is Jesus who gets to make that call and not the Jews. And that entrance to the kingdom of God is meant here is made more clear by the reference to the Jewish opposition eventually bowing down to them. In the Old Testament, numerous prophecies pointed to the day when the Gentiles, those outside of God's household, would bow down before God's people. And Jesus' comfort to the church of Philadelphia is that the reality will be the exact opposite of what their opposition expects. It will be the Jewish believers who bow down before the Gentile believers and not vice versa. It is now the, those who believe in Jesus who make up true Israel because Jesus is the true Israel. The determining factor of whether one is in the household of God or not is no longer whether one is in Abraham genetically, but rather whether one is in Abraham spiritually. And of course, in the New Testament, this means whether or not one is in Christ. And that is how the New Testament generally speaks about believers. We talk about Christ being in us, but that's only used a handful of times in the New Testament. More predominantly, hundreds of times, the New Testament talks about us being in Christ. And in fact, this is the way John puts it in his first epistle in 1 John chapter 5, verse 20, where it says, And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know the true one. We are in the true one, that is, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Notice that John uses the same phrase to describe Christ both in 1 John and in Revelation. He is the true one. And the fact that we are in the true one, the fact that we are in Jesus Christ, means that we are in the true God and that we have eternal life because Jesus is the true God and he is eternal life. And so the determining factor of whether one is in the household of God or not, whether one is in the kingdom of God or not, is no longer whether one is in the nation of Israel or not or whether one is in the synagogue or not, but rather whether one is in Christ or not because Jesus is the true Israel. He is the one in whom all of God's promises are fulfilled. He is the one who perfectly kept the law. He is the one who fulfilled Israel's destiny. And so those who are in Jesus are in Israel. They are in the household of God and in the kingdom of God. 
And the one who opens and no one will close and the one who closes no one can open speaks to Jesus' sovereignty. Once he opens the door to the kingdom to a person or a people, that door cannot be shut again. And once he has closed the door to the kingdom to a people or a person, that door cannot be opened again. And so Jesus is comforting the church at Philadelphia with the fact that their salvation is secure. That just because they have been cast out of the synagogue does not mean they have been cast out of the family of God. That he is the one who opens the door and no one can shut it once he has opened it. And he has opened it to the Gentiles and he has opened it to these believers in Philadelphia. Paul makes the same point in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 13 where he encourages the Ephesian church by saying, In him you, will, you were also sealed with the promised Holy Spirit when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and when you believed. That seal in ancient times was something that was permanent. The only one who could break that seal, who could open it once it was sealed, was the one whose seal it was or his representative. And so Paul was encouraging the church at at Ephesus, they have been sealed by the Holy Spirit, which means that the only one who could break that seal is God. And of course, God is faithful and he will not break the seal. And so just as Paul encouraged the church at Ephesus that no one could cause them to lose their salvation, no one could break God's seal upon him, not even themselves. So Jesus is encouraging this church at Philadelphia that no one can shut the door to the kingdom to them because he himself had opened it. And that means that not even we ourselves can shut that door. And so the same Jesus who loves you has saved you. And secondly, the same Christ who saved you is keeping you. The same Christ who saved you is keeping you. In verse 8 of Revelation 3, Jesus says, I know your works. Look, I have placed before you an open door that no one can close, because you have but little power, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. The open door that no one can close that Jesus has set before them is a reminder that no matter what their persecutors did, they could not rob them of their salvation. That the Jewish rulers and leaders in Philadelphia, the, even the Roman authorities in Philadelphia could do a whole lot to these believers but they could not rob them of their salvation. They could not kick them out of the household of God. They could not close off the kingdom of God to them. This is why Jesus in his earthly ministry could say things like he did in Matthew 10, 28, where he said, don't fear those who kill the body but are not able to kill the soul. Rather, fear him who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. Jesus, even in his earthly ministry, reminded his followers that it is ultimately he who gets to decide a person's eternal destiny. And so he's reminding again that the church of Philadelphia, he's the one that's opened the door. No one can close it. And so they need not fear the Jewish leaders. They need not fear the Roman authorities because it is Jesus who placed the open door. And the fact that it is Jesus who placed the open door means that all of salvation is ultimately dependent on him and not on us. We love to quote what Jesus will say to the church at Laodicea, which we'll look at next week in chapter 3, verse 20, where he says, See, I stand at the door and knock. 
If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. And we like to quote that verse in, in uh, giving invitations for people to believe or invitations for people to rededicate their life to Christ. And we, we quote it in a way that makes our salvation or our sanctification about our decision to let Jesus in. And yet Jesus makes it clear to the church of Philadelphia that he's the one that opens the door. He is the one that opens the door, so that not so that he can come into us, but that we can come into him. He is the one who brings us into the household of God. He is the one who brings us into the kingdom of God. And in case it wasn't clear by the fact that he opens the door for us, he then goes on to say that he opens the door that no one can close because they have but little power or little strength. Uh, they're not capable of opening the door for themselves. They're not capable of keeping the door open themselves. And because they have such little strength to keep that door open, Jesus sets up a door that cannot close, that no one can close, not even them, not even us. Jesus is reminding them that their being kept is not due to their strength, but to his strength. It's not because they're in their strength holding on to Jesus, but because he and his strength is holding on to them. Not that they and their strength are keeping that door propped open so that their physical enemies or their spiritual enemy cannot come and, and slam that door shut. But rather it's because he and his strength is keeping that door open that no one can come and slam it shut. And yet, with what little strength they did have, they had clung to his word, and so he encourages them to continue clinging to his word because his word has kept them thus far, and it will continue to keep them in the days ahead. And so in verse 10, he says, Because you have kept my command to endure, I will also keep you from the hour of testing that is going to come on the whole world to test those who live on the earth. And so Jesus says it is he who will keep them from the hour of testing. And now, of course, if you've learned anything about Revelation throughout your life, you've probably heard this verse at some point quoted as, as proof of a pre-tribulation rapture, that Jesus is, is talking about taking his church home and keeping them from the hour of testing or the hour of tribulation that will come on the whole earth. But this isn't necessarily a verse about the rapture or especially about a pre-tribulation rapture. Both the idea and the language is not... Uh, is not commiserate with what else we see throughout Scripture on what Jesus says about keeping us from testing. For example, in John 17, 15, Jesus at the Last Supper, uh, some of the last words he says to the disciples is actually in his high priestly prayer, and he's praying for the church. Uh, and cr believers throughout uh, the 2,000 years of church history have, have believed that Jesus is praying not just for the 12 disciples, but really for the entirety of the church throughout all time. And in John 17, 15, he says, I am not praying that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. And so as Jesus is going to the cross and praying for the church, he specifically prays that God would not take us out of the world, but rather he, he would protect us from the evil one. And Peter in 2 Peter 2, verse 9, is speaking of Noah being preserved through the flood and of Lot being preserved in the midst of the evil of Sodom and Gomorrah. And in 2 Peter 2.9, he, 
He says the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. And you can see Peter uses the same kind of language. He says that the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials when really his argument all along is not that he plucks them out of trials, but rather he preserves them through trials. And so what Jesus seems to be telling the church at Philadelphia is that there is a day of testing coming. Just as the church of Smyrna was, was rich, even though they were poor because of their suffering, they were rich because they suffered, and he had told them, you're about to get even richer. Here, he tells the church of Philadelphia, I know that you have persevered, and don't worry, you're going to experience even more testing, and yet I will preserve you through that as well. The whole point of the book of Revelation is not to formulate an escapist theology where we look forward to being rescued from tribulation. Rather, the point of the book of Revelation is to formulate a kingdom theology to instill within the church, within believers in Jesus Christ, that Christ still reigns and he will keep us in the midst of tribulation. And so, yes, one day, that day will come, either we will uh, physically die and enter the presence of the Lord or Christ will come back for his bride and we will be removed from all the suffering in the world and be given a new heaven and a new earth in which to live. But until that day, the message of hope to a church going through trial and testing and tribulation is not that they will escape from it, not that God will pluck them to not experience it, but rather that he will keep them through it, just as he kept Noah through the flood, just as he preserved Lot through the evils of Sodom and Gomorrah. And so the same Jesus who saved you is keeping you. It's not that justification is a free gift from God, and now in sanctification we've got to work really hard to become more Christ-like, but rather justification and sanctification are both free gifts that we are sanctified just as we are justified by grace through faith, not of ourselves, but as a gift from God. And so Jesus has saved us. He is keeping us. And thirdly, the same Christ who keeps you will glorify you. The same Christ who keeps you will glorify you. And this, of course, is the third aspect of our salvation. We've been justified we are being sanctified. One day we will be glorified. And that is also the work of Jesus and not our own work. In verse 12 of chapter 3, his promise to the church at Philadelphia is that the one who conquers, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will never go out again. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. Jesus really ups the stakes all of a sudden here with the church at Philadelphia. Those whom he has saved and kept are not just welcomed into the household of God. He tells them they are the household of God. They constitute the household of God. Though they have been expelled from the synagogue, they now make up the new temple. This is really what all of scripture, all of the gospel is about. Back in the early chapters of Genesis, we see God not just creating an earth, but really constructing a temple. 
And in the middle of all the ancient temples, there stood an idol, an image to the God who was worshipped in that temple. And of course, you read through Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, and in the middle of this cosmic temple of creation is not a, a idol of wood or of metal, but is man and woman, images of God, images of the God who will be worshipped in this temple. And of course, Adam and Eve are given the command to, to keep this temple and even to expand this temple. And yet, of course, they fall into sin and do not live up to what God had commanded them to do. And yet, the rest of Scripture is all about God bringing about what Adam and Eve did not accomplish. And you see glimpses of it all throughout Scripture. And so in the book of Exodus, you have the creation of a tabernacle where God will once again dwell with his people. And the whole creation of the tabernacle is set to kind of replicate creation week. And there's these series of sevens and the tabernacle is supposed to mirror creation. And there's even now the priest who will serve in the tabernacle as Adam and Eve were commanded to serve in the garden. And eventually the tabernacle is replaced by the temple in a very similar fashion, a more uh, prestigious and a more permanent tabernacle. And then you turn the pages over to the New Testament and John in his gospel says that the word became flesh and dwelt or tabernacled among us. So in the person of Jesus Christ, God was once again dwelling among his people. And then you read further into the New Testament and we as individual believers are called temples of the Holy Spirit in 1 Corinthians 6. And this is one of several passages that talk about the church as a whole, believers corporately being a temple for God. And so Jesus is promising that what God has been about doing for the entirety of history will be finished and culminated. And these believers in Philadelphia would be part of that. And in fact, he says that he will never go out. All you have to do is, is read the Old Testament. You get uh, towards the exile and when the Babylonians came and they destroyed Jerusalem and, and destroyed the temple. Before they're able to destroy the temple, God's presence goes out from the temple. And yet Jesus tells the believers at Philadelphia not only that they will be a temple to God, but that he will never go out of them. This is the promise that God would permanently dwell among his people. And in fact, he says that the name of God and our eternal dwelling place will be written on us. You see this again in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 10, where Peter says, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by people, but chosen and honored by God, you yourselves as living stones, a spiritual house, are being built to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, see, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and honored cornerstone, and the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. So honor will come to you who believe, but for the unbelieving, the stone that the builders rejected, this one has become the cornerstone, and a stone to stumble over and a rock to trip over. They stumble because they disobey the word. They were destined for this. 
But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession, so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And this message of of hope and promise that Peter is writing to his readers is the same one that Jesus is writing to the church at Philadelphia and indeed to all of us who have ears to hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Jesus himself was a stone rejected by people but chosen and honored by God and he became the cornerstone for this new temple. And now that Jesus is the cornerstone, only one of two things happen. You either trip over him as a stumbling block or you receive him as your Lord and Savior. And as you receive him, you too become a living stone, rejected by people, but chosen and honored by God. And you are being fitted together with believers throughout all history to be this new temple for God. And this, this should shape the way we read some of the end time prophecies about a new temple being constructed. We don't need to, to wonder what this is going to be because the New Testament tells us what this is going to be. We are the temple of God. Once again, creation will serve as the temple just as it was destined to do back in Genesis 1 and 2 before sin entered the picture. And now we, we might be cast out of the household of God, of the kingdom of God, in terms of being cast out by the Jewish believers in the case of Christians in Philadelphia, or we might be cast out by the world. We might not be accepted in society, and yet we are being built not just to be part of the household of God, but we are the household of God corporately as believers. We are being built. We don't just enter a temple. We are the temple of God. And not by our own merit, but by Jesus's merit. When we are in Christ, we become a living stone in this new temple to God. And that is a temple that God will never go out of. Again, not because you're doing anything, but because Christ has already done it. And this is the message of hope that Jesus gives to this, this suffering church, uh, a church that had persevered so far, and Jesus is encouraging them to persevere still, not by re- encouraging them with all the things that they could do, but by reminding them of all the things that he had already done on their behalf. Our comfort in the midst of suffering of trial, of tribulation, of persecution, is not you can do it, but rather he has done it. He is doing it, and he will do it. If you're a little older, um, and you liked SNL back in the day, you might remember Al Franken had a character called Stuart Smalley, and he was this motivational speaker, and he had this affirmation that he would always look into the mirror and say that I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and gosh darn it, people like me. And again, I think sometimes we're, we're tempted to almost take on that affirmation when we feel rejected, uh, when we feel worthless, when we feel inadequate, when we feel unsafe, uh, when we feel like we are not enough, when we don't feel loved. Uh, we, we take on the, the self-help culture of the, of the world around us, and we Tell ourselves, I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and gosh darn it, people like me. But again, that's not the message 
that Jesus gives the church at Philadelphia. Our affirmation should not be Stuart Smalley's. Rather, our affirmation is that he's good enough and he has called me his own. And because he has called me his own, I am now a living stone in a new temple to God, made up of all believers throughout all history with Jesus Christ as the cornerstone. And this is a temple that God will never go out of, but rather we will spend eternity with God dwelling in us and with us. He will be our God and we will be his people. Jesus is reminding the church at Philadelphia and reminding us that being beaten and broken, rejected and dejected does not disqualify us from the kingdom, but rather it's actually a prerequisite. And it was a prerequisite because our cornerstone experienced just that for us. In Isaiah chapter 53, verses 3 and 4, it says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like someone people turned away from. He was despised and we didn't value him. Yet he himself bore our sicknesses and he carried our pains. But we in turn regarded him stricken, struck down by God, and afflicted. It goes on in verse 11 and 12 of Isaiah 53 to say, After his anguish, he will see light and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will carry their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him the many as a portion, and he will receive the mighty as spoil, because he willingly submitted to death and was counted among the rebels. Yet he bore the sin of many and interceded for the rebels. What Jesus is encouraging the church of Philadelphia with and what he encouraged the church at Smyrna with and what he encourages us with is again that he did not endure the cross so that we might avoid the cross. but Rather, he endured the cross so that we might endure our cross as well. He endured suffering that we might endure suffering and not be destroyed by it. He was rejected not so that we might avoid rejection, but so that in being rejected, we might rest in his acceptance. After his anguish, he will see light and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my servant will justify many. He will carry their iniquities. And so he is satisfied by receiving the many as his portion. And so he accepts us so that in our rejection, we might be Accepted, not so that we might never experience rejection. And we see this again throughout the New Testament, and especially in Philippians chapter 3, where Paul says, My goal is to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, assuming that I will somehow reach the resurrection from among the dead. Paul did not try to escape from suffering. He did not try to escape from trial, escape from tribulation. Rather, he embraced it, knowing that it was the power of Jesus Christ in him that would enable him to endure it and overcome it. That it was in the death and suffering of Christ that the life of Christ would be found. And that is the message that Jesus is giving to the church at Philadelphia to encourage them in their time of trial and tribulation and testing is not that they should seek to avoid it, but rather that he would keep them through it. And that no matter what happened in this earthly sphere, 
their inheritance was secure. One day they would be the temple of the living God, that he would dwell within them and dwell with them. He would be their God. They would be his people. And that it didn't matter what level of, ex- of rejection, what level of condemnation, what level of persecution they experienced here in this life, because everything they needed could be found in him. Jesus not only loves you, he saves you. He not only saves you, he keeps you. And he not only keeps you, he glorifies you. He is the one who does it, not you. And so whatever you're going through, whether you are struggling due to the pandemic, whether you are struggling with sin, whether you are struggling with other forms of rejection or persecution or whatever else you may go th- be going through, The encouragement is not that you can do it, because brothers and sisters, let me gently say, you most likely can't. But the fact that he not only can do it, but has done it, is doing it, and will do it. The same Jesus who saved you is keeping you. He is able to keep you. As Paul wrote to the Philippians earlier in that book, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it, until the day of Christ Jesus. Thank you for joining us today as we looked at a letter to a persevering church. Next week, we will look at the final of Christ's seven letters to the churches, his letter to the church at Laodicea.